0: you're listening to a radio stockdale podcast podcasts that are inspiring interactive and feature various discussions of leadership ethics and law To philosophy at the movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me, as always, Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1956 film *The Rack*. So, this is a film set. The Korean War has now ended officially. Yes, right? yes, yes, and we see some POWs finally being returned home. And one of them went on a stretcher. His name is Captain Hall. Hall. His sister-in-law, because he had a brother over in Korea who, who died, and his father, who was also in the army. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for him, but he's first taken to a hospital. And he's seeing some initial treatment from a doctor. He's in a wheelchair. And then he goes over to a little gym area to watch a movie. And this mm-hmm. other veteran comes in and places a noose around his neck when he's not looking and a little sign that says traitor. And we eventually learn that Hall collaborated with his Chinese captors, particularly encouraging um, other POWs to sign these leaflets and also making propaganda messages on the on a ra- was it on the radio? Uh,
1: radio but primarily written for. Him. Written yeah, for. Yeah, but they would have they would have asked him to do both.
0: Yes. And now yeah. he is on trial this eventually we, his father first hears about this and he is outraged telling him why couldn't you have just died in combat and he is being his case is being prosecuted by a man named Moulton mm-hmm. we see Moulton of initially hesitant even though he's taking on the case he's not very he doesn't take a lot of pride in it he does he you almost feel like he doesn't even really want to see Hall punished further for what he's done yeah and we see Hall eventually... Meets him before the trial is set, and he treats him with respect. He's, you know, he, he considers like I'm not having you held in in uh, captivity for duration of the trial, and even when he's he has clusters because Hall was rewarded for bravery in combat. He, but he keeps them in his pocket because he's ashamed of what he did. He tells him we'll put them back on, mm-hmm. and so eventually it goes to trial. And we learn particularly from one of the other POWs that they were all pretty much subjected to the same amount of torture that Hull did. And we see the big moment when the man's name is Miller. This is the one that put the noose around his neck at the um, hospital. That he was tortured brutally and he shows the scars and wounds from what was done into the courtroom and everybody is aghast by the brutality that was shown to him but he says i never once collaborated i just gave him my name rank and serial number yes and eventually when paul gets on the stand of his prosecutor they talk about how originally he did the encouraging people to sign leaflets in the propaganda because he was concerned about the morale of the men in the camp he saw them and they were in squalor many of them were just Consigned to that, they were going to die here. He figured if he could get them angry at him, right, and worked yeah. up, that would give them the will to live.
1: Now, a point of clarification here: uh, at that point in the trial, it's not it, what what he does, what he reports having done, is not encouraging those enlisted men. Mm-hmm. Remember, because this is a key thing here, the uh, the Koreans made a great deal of effort to. Uh, uh, separate the officers from the enlisted. And he, being a good officer, trying to play that steward role, um, found a way to uh, uh, get into the enlisted area. And as was uh, uh, fairly typical for the Koreans, and then after this war, the Vietnamese, um, they were kept in squalor, deplorable conditions, starving, uh, obviously heavily demoralized. So uh, he, he was seemingly callously telling them if they didn't shape up, stand up, and behave uh, properly, right, that he would report them yes. to the Koreans and the Chinese. Um, and you, it, when you first hear that uh, story uh, um, told by a witness, you think, Well, wow, that's terribly callous. Why would he do this? And he is in some way or another, aiding and abetting, as it were, the the terrible treatment that the Chinese were given. But what's really interesting is uh, when he comes to testify, you can see that, uh, according to him, the reason he did that was because he saw these guys were on death's doorstep and uh, in that stage of um, um, the dying process where you're just lethargic and, and you don't care about anything. And he thought, I've got to do something to shake these guys out of this so that they have a chance to survive. So what I'm going to do is piss them off at me sufficiently uh, to where they'll get up, maybe try to attack me, whatever, just so I can get their emotions engaged. And they
0: did attack him. And
1: and they did attack him. And, you know, it's uh, uh, powerful about that particular scene as opposed to later parts of his um, testimony is at that point, you find that story... I I did. I found that story plausible. I understood the rationalization. I still questioned whether he should have taken on that role of, of, um, as it were, being an extension of the authority of the camp. Um, Maybe there would have been some other way to piss these guys off at him or make these guys angry at him. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that wasn't the best choice, but it was certainly understandable. And and you you found you believed uh, Captain Hall uh, with that rationale. Uh, so I did just want to clarify that.
0: Yeah. And, and so anyway, they, but he does that initially, but as he's doing that, they start isolating him more, the prisoners, and they eventually forcing him to write what they call his biography Yes, about his life. And eventually the first times he just makes up a bunch of stuff, but they got wise to it. And they eventually forced him so they could find some way to exploit him, mm-hmm. psychologically manipulate him. And eventually the thing was, they say, was his relationship with his father. He felt upset that his father never cared for him enough. Yeah. And he, his mother passed on, and they used that. And eventually they do get him to break.
1: And the key the key element there is that they've... Uh, they choose the opportune time when they think he is at his most vulnerable to reveal to him that his brother has also been Mm -hmm. killed in Korea. And he reports that that was the final straw for him and that he, to use that word, broke at that point. Yeah, that's correct. And and that's also very historically accurate, um, the portrayal of the uh, um, uh, lengths to which the Koreans and then later the Vietnamese did this as well, um, the, the links to which they went to extract personal information from men um, I, for one of two purposes, and more clearly it 's the second of the purposes i 'm listing here, but the first one 's propaganda. and that was the Koreans did do that. Um, they did generate propaganda, radio propaganda, print propaganda, um, and circulated it to some extent globally. Um, but that didn't become a, as it were, a uh, a, a key tactic, uh, a key practice in the in the practice of war uh, uh, until the Vietnamese did it. They they developed that to a high art. Um, the second the second objective is the one precisely what you said is they are looking to find vulnerabilities and and reduce the prisoner to uh, despair a feeling of helplessness and also a feeling ultimately of dependency and a feeling that he, he, their captors are, are the ones that can somehow or another set things right for them and of course uh, they do want to get across to them they have absolute power over them as well and if you if you read uh, uh, accounts of uh, POW experiences in Korea and Vietnam, um, the ones that the, 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 the prisoners that had uh, uh, equal experience of torture and the isolation efforts will tell you that the worst, believe it or not, the, the worst of the two is isolation. After a while, it's just about inevitable that there will be a, a uh, to use that term again, a, a break. Uh, they begin to wonder whether, whether they will be able to remain uh, emotionally, psychologically sane. And they knew this. Uh, the Chinese communists and uh, r- Russian communists uh, both uh, did extensive studies, and you can imagine the kind of human experimentation they did on this with prisoners from uh, their own uh, political prison systems and their criminal prison systems. They knew that the use of isolation, as described in this movie, is very effective for that end. And it's it's essentially darkness, uh, making them live in their own squalor. Little or no human contact, if there is going to be any human contact, it will be with the jailers who have absolute control over their destinies. They make that very clear to them. And uh, uh, the combination of these things, and sometimes uh, I should say not just deprivation of food, but sometimes water as well, uh, the combination of these things reduces men, especially if, if they're subject to this uh, for months, even years at a time. It reduces them to desperation. It, re- it They become very concerned for their uh, sanity. And they know if they add to that, Uh, the gasoline of um, making them expose all of their personal information or painful events in their past and then sprinkle in that information about the brother um, uh, having been uh, killed in the war, uh, they know, hopefully, that 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 will do the trick. And they do a very good job, I think, of, in this film of contrasting the, those two experiences. The experience of isolation on the ca- in the case of Captain Hall and the experience of the torture, which was uh, 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 in the Lee Marvin character, Captain Miller. That rings true when you when you watch this story. The uh, Captain Miller character was able to resist, able to not buckle under, under the extreme physical duress. Hall eventually buckled under under the extreme emotional and psychological distress presented by that isolation. And they do a really good job of uh, exploring that difference here in this script. Uh, It's a great script.
0: Yes, and eventually at the end he is found guilty. Yes. And... They're giving him one last sort of speech on his defer his defense because it'll affect sentencing. Mm-hmm. We find out that he him and Miller did have a conversation, and it's sort of them Miller forgiving him in a way, sort of understanding what caused him to do what he did yes and sort and then that's the end of the movie. We don't really we know he's guilty, but we don't know what the sentencing will bring. Maybe it will be lenient or it'll be harsh. And that's one of the problems I did have with that movie, because I think having that conversation, showing it, because it's just told, we don't really see the conversation. I think yeah. that would have greatly helped. Over would have been a powerful scene. It,
1: it would have been a powerful scene, um, and maybe part, this is an interesting fact about this film, that character and that inter- particular um, um, conflict, uh, it's not in the original Rod Serling script.
0: And is, this was a, originally a teleplay. Yes, a U.S. Steel House a year before, um, in 1955.
1: Yes, uh, in, in the era when uh, uh, large corporations um, sponsored television shows, actually, the U.S. Steel Hour was originally a radio program, and they would do original plays like this. It's interestingly different. It's the Serling script, and they yeah. took the they took the Serling script and
0: changed it up, and I think improved it actually. Even though this was about the Korean War, one film that was earlier was from 1947 that was running in my mind was a movie called Act of Violence. It starred Van Heflin and Robert Ryan. Mm -hmm. It was directed by Fred Zinneman, who you might know from movies like uh, High Noon and From Here to Eternity. The story is it's after the war, and we see this wounded war veteran. He was a POW. He has a limp in his leg. He's looking for his commanding officer, and he's planning to kill him it's revealed that they were in a german prison camp um they were just like in this movie in terrible conditions and robert ryan and a couple group of his men were so desperate they were planning to escape the his officer played by van heflin Mm -hmm. um figured it was futile and he was afraid that they were going to get killed so he warned the commandants what was going to happen but he said please take it easy on them but of course they killed brutally killed them Wow. But Ryan was able to survive by playing dead, but he had a wound in his leg. Yeah. And so when he Ryan finds out that Van Heflin's become a, is in the newspaper, that's how he found out as a great member of his community, he has the he has a loving wife and everybody loves him, but he doesn't share his secret. So that's why Ryan wants to kill him in that movie and it's you could see the Ryan Ryan character exemplified in Lee Marvin. He puts the noose around Newman's neck at the beginning calling him a traitor. Mm-hmm. He thinks he should die. He should pay, but he doesn't. He's not going for this vigilante justice like Ryan is, but there is a lot of similarities, but then we hear stories about particularly Japanese prison camps, the Bataan death march and how brutal they were. And uh you can think of uh Germans how they treated uh, POWs, particularly the Malmedy massacre in mm-hmm. France. Yeah. Was their method of did they also use psychological torture like uh, we saw in this film, or was it just more physical torture and brutality?
1: Um, It was it was I would say there's a phrase called benign neglect. It was malignant neglect. Um, The attitudes the Japanese and the Germans both had toward POWs that they were actually kind of a nuisance. Um, It was more egregious in the Japanese case. They didn't want to hold these people. Um,
0: and they also viewed surrendering as a great dishonor.
1: Yes, and so they, uh, um, if they were to make use of them at all, it would be as slave labor, which they did not only to POWs but to subject nations, uh, Asian nations in the so-called Asian co- uh, the co prosperity sphere. Um, so it's it's different. Um, there wasn't an idea on the part of the Japanese or the Germans that they could make use of the POWs for propaganda purpose purposes. So what they did, and interestingly, in, in a lot of cases, you have to remember this is before the Geneva Conventions. The Geneva Conventions on the Treatment of POWs, they were passed in 1949. And there are pages and pages of detailed regulations that detaining powers must uh, follow including uh, setting up a quasi-independent economic system for the uh, POWs to use. Um, There are supposed to be elections um, held by the detaining powers for representatives of the POW population. And I can't give you every jot and tittle of these regulations, but they were intended to prevent the kinds of things that happened uh, in the Japanese camps and also the German camps as well, the inhumanity. Um, but what's kind of curious about it is, uh, as, as well-meaning as these regulations are, what they often end up doing is um, setting prisoners against each other. It was very common in the Japanese prison systems for black markets to form. And people would sell uh, prisoners uh, would sell uh, uh, buy and sell uh, commodities not only with the Japanese or maybe even the local population through which they had uh, they, with which they had connections because prisoners would be allowed to go to town and, and buy things um, so you ended up having people uh, prisoners. Um, uh, exploiting and manipulating fellow prisoners or hiding medicine from each other cause, because because perhaps they could get a better price for it if they held on to it. You know, malaria medications. You would have uh, uh, allied prisoners hiding these kinds of things from fellow prisoners in the hopes of making money. And you had cooperation with for, with Korean and Japanese guards. It was very common during World War II. Um, so... That history uh, and what occurred in the Korean War uh, made uh, the uh, U.S. government and the U.S. military very concerned with these kinds of behaviors where uh, men were actually, uh, as it were, putting to the side concern for their fellow servicemen. So they passed the, the... American Fighting fighting Man's uh, Code of Conduct. Uh, President Eisenhower passed that. And this was passed after the Korean War and in light of events like the ones uh, portrayed in this film. And one of the first things it says, I, probably the most important um, uh, article of the Code, is that you or anybody that is a PLW must um behave as if one they're still in the war two they are still in the chain of command of the US military um and these are things that that uh, Geneva convention um uh doesn't uh, do not require they they, they treat uh, uh the language of those conventions treats POWs as if they're kind of rudderless and no longer connected and citizens, generic citizens of the world, not still citizens of their own country. And that led to this kind of behavior. That kind of treatment led to this kind of behavior. And the idea behind the Code of Conduct was to prevent that and make sure that the uh, uh, men did not um, accede To uh, uh, organizations or means of control that were uh, dictated um, from the detaining power, Um, they had to maintain a code of conduct um, or or a chain of command. I should say, Um, any, for instance, any senior, the most senior officer in a in a unit was obligated to take command. Believe it or not, that was not a part of the Geneva Conventions. Um and anybody that is under it has to follow the orders of that senior commander um, now what's really striking about the contrast between the behavior in Korea and the behavior in uh, the North Vietnamese prison systems, particularly the wallow prison, the zoo, the plantation, some of these other um, camps where... Uh, 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 American aviators, by and large, were held during the Vietnam War is they they had been inculcated with that code of conduct in Sear school before they ever went over and were deployed. and they took it quite seriously. and they followed those dictates. So uh, it's very striking the number of people that collaborated with the North Vietnamese, as opposed to the percentage that collaborated with the North Koreans and the Chinese in the Korean War, is substantially lower. And uh, most of the POWs will tell you uh, the reason is um, they took that code of conduct as as a a guiding principle. Yes, it's very general in form, but it's still a guiding principle, and it delineates acceptable behavior from unacceptable. And it made very clear... That the kind of behavior you saw Captain Hall uh, undertake uh, was beyond the pale.
0: And when you see the movie, it's more. I think the they talk more about it than actually the teleplay, but the concern of the verdict because they feel that well, if he's innocent, what would what president would this set? You know, basically, they're saying okay, you get to a certain point, then it's okay to give information. Yes. And they, they some other people say, well, hasn't he gone through enough? He's gone through all this torture, all this psychological torture. He has mm-hmm. to feel with the guilt of collaborating with the enemy. Isn't that enough? Now he's got to go to particularly to a military prison camp for the rest of his life for a very long time. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, if do they have a point? If, he, if they do find him innocent, would that in, somehow encourage more people to collaborate saying, well, it will be OK because he got away with it?
1: yeah I think I think you're right, and it's that kind of uh, reasoning uh, that I think was behind the formation of the code of conduct. We cannot allow a precedent to be set of this kind of behavior. So even if we understand and sympathize with Captain Hall and what he went through, we do also have to keep in mind that there were other people in that camp that were subjected to the exact same means. And they did not break, right? And we're talking specifically about the emotional and psychological uh, torture. Um, And we even have in the film a a few people uh, uh, testifying to that fact. Yes, I went through that, didn't break. And then most tellingly, and I think this is where the movie script is an improvement over the television script, um, under-questioning cross-examination, Captain Hall admits, essentially, no, I didn't break. I made a choice. I could have gone one day farther and not made the choice to collaborate and sign my name to these documents and these, uh, as it were, pleadings to my fellow Americans to be treasonous. So he admits it. And that, that, That shows some psychological depth there. If you look at interviews and accounts of POWs in Vietnam, but also in Korea, too, you will see that uh, all of them, all of them will say, whether they were given physical or psychological torture, all of them that do eventually, to use that word again, break, all of them say, I could have gone one more minute longer or just one day longer and not done this. And so they have a great deal of, um, uh, uh, guilt about that. And it's always, it's always there, but, um, um, I think it's a, a testament to the uh, script writers, uh, awareness of the psychology here that, uh, they make that very salient point again in the film it's not so much in the in the television play um but yeah uh uh, guilt moral injury it's a uh, it's a, uh, a major part of the pow experience and one of the striking things about the leadership in the in the north vietnamese prison system is they realized this and they realized you know at some point Everybody will break under the physical or the emotional torture. And at at that point, every person will still think they could have done more. So what we have to do is to make sure as a collective uh, organization here, we make great pains to communicate. No matter how hard they try to isolate us from one another, we must communicate and we must tell each other, hey, We've been there. We've done that. We're not all Clark Kent or Superman, but we have to regroup. We have to make them work for it again. Don't make it easy for them. This is a battle. And Admiral Stockdale and uh, Jerry Denton and the other POWs in Wallow in, in and those other prisons I mentioned earlier did an outstanding job in that regard, and that was sorely lacking in the Korean War. And it certainly was not very consistently applied in in uh, World War II as well.
0: You see, because even when they talk about this verdict, they realize something has to change to stop things like this from happening. There has to be some way to deal with this and what you mentioned. But also, I wonder if even during basic training, when before they've even been deployed, whether it was Korea or Vietnam or later in the two Gulf Wars, if there is saying... They're telling recruits there is a chance during combat you could be captured, and they're going to be to prepare them like they could do this physical oh, yeah. torture. And, well this
1: is yeah. this has been going on for a while. It's survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Seer School. Um, aviators all have to take it, um, but it is a uh, pretty grueling course, and they actually have people that have uh, that were former POWs teach these courses. So. Uh, during the Vietnam War, they had former Korean POWs uh, help design and uh, implement the course for aviators. And they they subject them to what I would call torture light. I mean, they're clearly not going to do the things they did to Captain Miller, uh, to their fellow American servicemen. But they isolate. They starve. They put them in very small boxes, keep them in the dark for an extended period of time. Um, I've heard people tell me that it went through Sears school. Um that, uh, they have some of the same kinds of terrors and experiences that, um, uh, these POWs, uh, had in, uh, Korea and Vietnam and, and hallucinate, uh, down, and so forth. But, uh, each one of them will tell you, you know, it's a very different experience doing that, knowing there will be an end to it in a few, in a month or, you know, a few weeks and, um, uh, you know, they won't push it too far, um, uh, that's quite a different experience from actually living the POW experience at the hands of uh, people like the uh, North Koreans or the Vietnamese also not knowing when it's going to end i mean think about the guys in the vietnam prison system they had no idea this was a, a on again off again war for years and uh some of them spent 9 years in the North Vietnamese system there were some people held in South Vietnam even longer than that and they weren't they didn't even have the benefit of, of a roof over there they were in the jungle and tiger cages
0: yeah it was like what we discussed a long time ago with Dieter Dengler yes. who was held by the Pathet Lao
1: right yeah um, so it's a very different experience. Nevertheless, uh, that, that Seer school experience that most most of them will say uh, is invaluable. It does give you a, as it were, a firsthand taste of what you might be undergoing.
0: And at the end of the movie, we don't see the sentencing. and you're thinking, okay, he has been found guilty, but will the court show mercy on him and give him something of a lenient sentence? Or even give him some way of redemption through the army, be allowing him to either reenlist or mm-hmm. find some sort of position, or will it be? Because they don't. I think they mention it more in the teleplay, but they say the suggested sentence is roughly thirty years in a prison.
1: Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, there's nothing in the film. I actually like the fact that the film ends before the sentencing, and with uh, Captain Hall. Um, Talking about that conversation he had with Captain Miller, and admitting it's very striking how he puts it. Uh, Miller says, you know, um, when it comes, every, every person has has a crucial juncture like this happen to them, and he noted he notices this is not just in the military. He says every person at some point uh, has a juncture like this where they have a choice to uh, take the road that is. Um, going to be uh, uh, valorous uh, morally uh, honorable uh, glorious to an extent because it, it shows the, the capabilities of human freedom making a choice to do the right thing under the most horrible duress or not doing that and living the balance of your life in deep regret Right? he admits that he did the latter. And I kind of like that's very touching because I think that, that's a report of that conversation we never saw between him and Miller. There's a reconciliation there, I think, because of the, the common element in their experiences was duress. Although with Miller it was physical, with Paul it was psychological. And you would think, I mean, it's, 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 you can, if you look at historical precedent, um, the uh, cases of the collaborators, uh, uh, there was a mix of there were a mix of verdicts in in, in the Korean War and in the Vietnam War. Both um, there was quite a deal of, of, of leniency, but um, that being the case, there were also there were also cases of harsher punishments, um, like the thirty year punishment. And again, that's a that's a Uh, recognition, I think, on the part of the uh, U.S. government military that you cannot set a precedent of allowing people to, as it were, choose to buckle under that pressure because when they do so, they place their fellow servicemen at risk. Not, Not necessarily the ones that are still in combat, although it could be, but most directly their fellow POWs in whatever camp they are in and whatever system of camps that Americans are being held in. Because once you buckle under and cooperate with these guys, you put those other guys uh, um, at greater risk because uh, the the captors aren't stupid. They're going to see success in, in one case as a harbinger of success in further cases, and they will increase the pressure on the fellow prisoners. So you have a stewardship obligation uh, to your fellow prisoners to not buckle under. And we had better make that clear in our punishment phase of our courts martial. Uh, Otherwise, uh, the future, we will actually be failing in our stewardship responsibilities for future combatants that will become POWs. That's the rationale behind it.
0: Okay. All right, getting close to the end of my questions here. Anything else you want to bring up before we start wrapping up? I, this is the second um, Korean War movie we did, and we talked about The Steel Helmet a long time ago, and I was talking about how there should be... It's Korean War movies are kind of been forgotten about, but in recent news, there is... I wanted to bring up a new Korean War movie coming out in just a couple of months. It's called Devotion, and... Hang on. It is a true story about the friendships between a friendship between two fighter pilots, Jesse Brown, Tom Hudner. Jesse Brown was the first African American Navy fi- naval fighter pilot, and it's, it's cool because I I've actually was familiar with that story because I've read the book it was mentioned in called uh, "On Desperate Ground" by Hampton Sides about the battle of the Chosen Reservoir. So it's good to see. Korean war, the Korean War now being more represented because it has that reputation as the forgotten forgotten
1: war, war. yeah exactly right and it, it it's it's an interesting war because in in terms of uh, the warfare in the latter half of the twentieth century and to some extent uh, uh, even into the twenty first century it was the first the first war that gave us an inkling of what uh, what role. Uh, propaganda and mass media might play. So I find it very interesting for that regard. But also, uh, as you mentioned, it was also one of the first wars that uh, during which the U.S. government kind of uh, made a much more concerted effort, as it were, to uh, integrate the fighting forces, um, much more so than happened during World War II. Although it's very interesting, you had uh, integrated. Uh, uh, circumstances in POW camps very often. Um, but you certainly had it in Korea, and you even had it to a, 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 a slightly larger extent in the Vietnam War. So I, I'm kind of curious to see how they explore that story with, you know, two officers. I'm sure they're both officers, uh, fighter pilots, and uh, how they dealt to kind of cross that racial divide and probably overcame it, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, very much a, a a, a story that um, um, has resonance these days. And there are similar stories
0: that occurred in the Vietnam War as well. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Yes, and it comes out November 23rd. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. Each episode I dedicate the classic movie soundtracks, that can be found online at thesattocinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker and I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long. Be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.